Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Okay, thank you for tuning in. I say tuning in as if this was radio. Thank you for listening or downloading or streaming this podcast. Um, I'm Brady Huggett. I'm the host of Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. Our guest today is Nancy Kelly. I love doing these interviews. I love doing all of them, actually, but I'm, I'm always particularly interested when the person I'm interviewing has a background that is not typical for the life sciences, and Nancy Kelly is one of those. She uh, graduated from high school, got married, and had three kids before she ever considered higher education. And when she did, that higher education was uh, community college. Um, from there, she transferred to Yale, where she nearly flunked out, as, she'll, as she says. Uh, you know, it was, she was being taught by Nobel laureates, and it was overwhelming for someone. She was not prepared for that level of instruction. Um, but she got the help she needed, adjusted, and ex- succeeded at a very high level. Uh, from there, she went on to get a JD. And Anyway, the point being, um, we talked about all that. We talked about her helping establish the East River Science Park here in New York, her um, plan to establish the New York Genome Center in New York as well. Uh, we talked about the secret meeting in Boston around synthesizing a human genome. And, and I'm, I'm putting air quotes around the word secret. Uh, you can't see that, of course, because this is audio. Um, we get into the history of that as well. All that in this talk. So here it is, your First Rounders podcast with Nancy Kelly. Um, no, I had not. This will be easy. We'll yeah, forget okay. the mic is there in a minute. I've done, you know, videos and stuff, which I, I, I'm not a good on-camera person. So. I'm not either. <laughs> so there's no camera for this. It's right, people it's great. Um, I thought for some reason... Your the the Nancy Kelly and Associates is on Duane Street. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I thought it was. For some reason, I thought it was in Boston. No, I moved to New York from Boston three years ago um, when I was managing the New York Genome Center. Yeah. And so I actually moved to Duane Street. My office is there also. Okay, but it, that's where that um, that's where Nancy Kelly Associates was founded, right there. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Well, right. I mean, that's for, in New York. I've had this company going for. A long time in between. Oh. Usually, what I'll do is, I will work until I find a big project that I want to run, and then you know, and then when I leave that project, I go, go back, back to, to it until That's I what, find another. I was going to ask you about that. Okay, yeah. we'll get to that. So let, let's start with. Um, you grew up in Connecticut, right? Yes. Were you born there? I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Ah, so what did your parents do? My father was a milkman, uh-huh. amongst other things. He also delivered newspapers early in the morning to the newspaper boys. 
and he delivered prescription drugs for Pope Park Drug in Hartford. So he had three or four jobs going for about 40 years. The first raise. one the first one being, I mean, time-wise, the first thing in the morning is the paper or the milk? Uh, the milk, yeah. So he would get up, do the milk, then do the paper, and then go do the pharmaceuticals after That's that. That's right. Wow, yeah. how did he get into that? He had a large family, and those jobs were available to him. Yeah. How about your mother? Um, my mother, actually started a couple of small businesses um, with home parties, like Royal Plastics. It was similar to Tupperware, right? Yeah. but it was a long time ago. That yeah. was a, a, the precursor to Tupperware, I guess, um, Royal Plastics. And then she did Princess House, which was crystal and copper. And um, so she sold that at parties at night and earned a little bit of extra money that way. And both my parents sold Amway on the side. They they did everything they could to make a buck, let me tell yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> and did it, it worked? It worked. I mean, they raised five children, and um, all of us, you know, had private school education, Catholic school education, and music lessons, and we went on camping trips together, and... Um, so they they really did a great job. So they sort of means. hustled, it sounds yes. like. Yes. Huh. Mm-hmm. And, and where are you in those five kids? Middle child. Middle child. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. I'm a middle child myself. So <laughs> you're like the hub, right? The hub of the... Yeah, either that or the um, the wild card, right? <laughs> I guess. Are you the wild card? Maybe you're the wild yeah, card. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. All right. Well, what was it, growing up in Hartford, what was that like? What, what I actually, interests? we moved to Manchester, Connecticut when I was um, very young, probably a year oh, or so. Oh, okay. So I really don't remember Hartford very much, other than visiting my grandparents there. Um, one of my grandparents lived in a, a French enclave called Frog Hollow uh-huh. um, on Park Street, and uh, my other grandparents lived not too far from there. So we went back and forth a lot, but we moved to um, a suburb in Manchester, Connecticut, and uh, my parents had just bought a house there. It was, you know, um, in the late 1950s when all of that's what people were doing. They were moving out of the cities yeah. into the suburbs. Yeah. And um, so that's where I grew up. So the Frog Hollow, is that French Canadian or French? French Canadian. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. No, uh, yeah. I mean, I grew up partially in Maine. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of French Canadians there. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So um, you're growing up in Manchester mm-hmm. and uh, you, you go to a private Catholic school. I attended public schools until fifth grade, and then I, I went to Catholic schools. For, for, for high, high school, school, basically, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then what, what were your interests, and what did you, if you did, I don't know if you did, but did you have thoughts about what your life might be like? I had interests. Um, I loved science even then, and uh, I remember one camping trip we took up to Bar Harbor, Maine. That yeah. was the first time I visited the Jackson Laboratory. Right. Never dreamed I'd be on their board for 20 years at some point. I was fascinated by they when they actually had an informational session on Wednesday afternoon where tourists could actually go and see what they did. And so my family attended that and just really piqued my interest. Um, I was very interested in oceanography, really followed Jacques Cousteau and... Um, read a lot of books, Madeline Engel, Wrinkle in Time, yeah, yeah. and the Arm of the Starfish. Those were just, you know, things that fascinated me. I did. I just did a podcast with David Baltimore, mm-hmm. and he also went to Jackson for a summer 
um, and hooked him immediately into science. It's like it's had quite an influence. It, it absolutely has. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you're you're in high school. Um, I know that you you got married young. Mm-hmm. So was this by plan? Were you the wild card? <laughs> what happened? I definitely it definitely was uh, not planned. Um, I graduated from high school in the top 10% of my class, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, but at that time, especially for working class families, no one was encouraging young women to go to school. Right. And um, I didn't receive that encouragement from my guidance counselor. Or your family? Or my family. Yeah. Um, and so there wasn't really much for me to do. I, I enrolled for a semester at Manchester Community College um, and then um, dropped out and got a job full-time as a claims clerk at the Travelers Insurance Company in Hartford. I don't, what's a claims clerk? Uh, you basically take checks out of envelopes and look at whether they are consistent with the claim form, uh-huh. and then you add them all up and you put them into spreadsheets and whatnot. It was sort a clerk job. Data enter, entry. Almost. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, and I was uh, dating a guy that, you know, I was mad about, and we got married. That's, that's your husband mm-hmm. to this day? No. No, we got divorced about uh, 15 years ago, but we were married for 25 years. Ah, okay. Okay. So... You, you, um, on your own volition, you go to community college for a while, drop mm-hmm. out, start working, fall in love, mm-hmm. and you go, I am guess I'm, I'm a housewife now, right. and start having a family. Right. You're still 17 at this point? I was 17, yeah. And then, mm-hmm. and I think, you, you know, we talked earlier, I think you said you had three kids in short order. Three kids in 13 months. Oh, you, was <laughs> oh. <laughs> one of them twins? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So I had Aaron first. That my, was my oldest. And then I, 13 months later, I had uh, two twin daughters, Jamie okay. and Jennifer. All right. Mm-hmm. So then, then what happens? And, 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 and what does your husband do or did he do? I'm sorry. He um, was a, he ran a machine on the floor at Pratt Whitney Aircraft. So he was a vertical turret lathe operator. Uh-huh. And later... He got into a tool and die program, which is a very highly specialized program um, in a manufacturing plant. Yeah. And that was really a great step for him. And so financially, you were fine, it sounds like. No, we actually weren't. We no. were broke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, he worked at Pratt Whitney in the day, and then uh, over he first he went to Finest and stocked bread on shelves, and then he worked at Pratt Whitney on second shift. And uh, I worked as the claims clerk, and then on my way home, I worked at Friendly's Cooking until very late at night, and, uh, and I was pregnant then. So once um, I had Aaron, I couldn't work anymore, and so that put a big dent in our right. income. We weren't making a lot of money anyway. Right. And then you had the twins after that. That's right. right. Okay, so at this point... And you correct me where I'm wrong, right? Um, you go back to community college in Manchester. No, not immediately. Um, the twins were very, very sick. We had, uh, in fact, Jennifer ended up in the first neonatal unit ever built in Connecticut um, for a couple of months. They were born very premature. 
And um, so I was still uh, in between taking care of these three infants. I was cooking up an answer. I was getting any you know job I could to yeah. bring in spare income. And at one point, uh, one of my husband's colleagues had a, a, a wife who um, did these decorating with home interior decorating, and she bought uh, accessories from a company in Dallas, Texas called Home Interiors and Gifts. Uh-huh. And so I went to one of the gatherings where she was demonstrating about how to put accessories in your home together and whatnot. And I think she sold $150 that night. And I asked her, I said, how much did you make tonight? And she said, oh, I made $60. And I thought, that's how much I make an entire week cooking at Bonanza. I'm going to do this <laughs> because I kind of had a flair for color and yeah, whatnot. Yeah. So I invested about $250 and bought some stuff from this company. And I asked nine of my friends to have a gathering of their friends so that I could show people what I could do. And um, the first night was a total bomb. Uh, <laughs> I, it was someone that I really didn't know very well. It was a friend of a friend. And... Um, I got up, I had been practicing for weeks, and I got up and I looked at all of those women. There were probably 15 women there. I forgot everything I was supposed to say. Oh, man. And um, so you just, all I you could just... think of was, I want to go home. And then I backed up and I had lit some candles and I knocked one of them over and burned a hole in her carpet. <laughs> It's like a sitcom. Oh, my God. It was so... It was terrible. I was mortified. And... Um, so you sold nothing that night? No, I, I still sold $150. Oh, really? No one invited me to come to their homes, but I did sell some stuff. And uh, so at the end of that night, I thought, okay, tonight everything went wrong that could possibly have gone wrong. Yeah. Now it's all uphill from right, here. Right. It's a good attitude. So... Um, or downhill, whatever. So anyway, after that, it picked up, and uh, I did that for three years. I ran this company out of my home, and um, I made a fair amount of money. And pretty soon, I was working in three states, you know, doing like three three different um, appointments a day. A day? And uh, yeah, mostly at night, um, late afternoon and at night. So Scott would come home and you would go do this? That's right. Yeah, okay. So that's how you handled daycare that's or, right. or uh, child care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We alternated. Keep going. And, uh, and so I did that. And then finally, um, you know, it was just getting to be a lot. The girls were going to start school. I didn't want to be gone at night anymore while they were at home. And so I needed to look for something else to do. But I wasn't trained to do anything. And I was used to being independent and running my own show. And so I decided instead of um, just taking another, you know, clerk job or whatever, that I would take out a student loan and go back to school at the community college. So that's what you did. So that's what I did. Okay, and and um, as you said, you were strapped a little financially here. So how how did that go over? You're talking to Scott, and you're like, I need to take a loan out now for school. And mm-hmm. is he like, okay, because that is an investment in the future? Yes. And he agreed. Okay, yeah. good, good. Yeah, he did agree. And uh, so I went back to the community college. This was in 1980. I would drop the kids off at nursery school um, and kindergarten, and then I would go to school myself until around noon and then come back and pick them up and take care of them all day and then do my homework at night. And um, while I was at the community college, I got uh, very, very involved 
I ran for the student senate and started getting involved in student governance types of things. And I really became quite passionate about some of the issues um, of the community college because they provide such an opportunity for so many people in our country. Yeah. They were certainly providing an opportunity for my family. And, um, you know, I was majoring in accounting. I thought at some point I would transfer to UConn and maybe become a tax lawyer. I had no idea why I wanted to be a tax lawyer at that time. But um, I ended up getting involved uh, politically on campus uh, because uh, funding was being cut for the community colleges. And the average student at that time was a single mother with a family going back to school to try to get an education so she could support herself. Uh -huh. um, and Reagan was introducing a number of cuts to the Pell Grant program and other student aid uh, programs. And I really felt quite strongly that that was cutting off an avenue for people who really needed education to help themselves. So um, the Student Senate, with me in the lead, uh, organized the campus. And we um, went to Washington to lobby our congressmen about these cuts as part of a larger um, initiative. We got a bus and we went down there for a day. And then when we returned, um, we organized a financial aid awareness day on campus. and. I think there were 300 people there. The governor came the day before and tried to explain why he was cutting the funding for the community colleges, which didn't go over well. What was the reason? Um, it just, the, you know, budgetary constraints. And, um, that is the reason. Right, exactly. Um, so we registered about 150 people to vote that day, I think, and uh, got a lot of publicity in the state. And I was also doing a legislative intern program at the state capitol, at that time. And so uh, the campus, you know, lots of visibility for Manchester Community College as a result of all of that activity. And um, when I finished up at the end of two years there, uh, I applied for a Truman Scholarship. Some of the faculty um, encouraged me to apply. And we had already had two Truman Scholar winners. And so it would be unusual for a community college to have a third because it's a very competitive scholarship program. Only one scholarship is awarded to each state, and then there are some awarded at large. And um, so I, uh, I applied, and I was selected for an interview, and I took the bus at 4 in the morning to Boston, and... I went to, I think, the 26th floor of a big bank building where the interview was being held, and I was so nervous. And um, I walked in, and there were two participants there waiting for their interviews. One was from Stanford, and one was from Harvard. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, you know, what am I doing here? So um, I went into the interview, and they immediately attacked my essay, which was the case for the community college. And luckily, um, I had read an article the day before. I was walking by a professor's office, and he had an article taped to the outside of his door. Mm -hmm. And it was an article that was very critical about the community colleges and the fact that um, 
they got all this funding, but all they really did was provide a place where senior citizens could go and play cards. Yikes. And, you know, um, so anyway, the first question was a quote from the article. And they said, how would you defend the community colleges? And I, you know, I don't even remember what I said. I was so nervous. And all I remember was that it was a very heated exchange. And um, when I walked out of there, I thought I had just blown the biggest right. opportunity of right. my they life. Right, they hated you, you thought. Right. Yeah. And I was so upset. I was crying, and I walked back to the train station or the bus station because I was too embarrassed to get into a cab. <laughs> um, and so, you know, to make a long story short, they gave me the scholarship. That's, they they awarded me the scholarship. Did they say anything about it? Like, sorry that we were shouting at each no, other? No, 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 no. There's a national um, office that actually administers the... They contacted the, you. Yeah, they contacted yeah. me. And um, so that really was the opening door to an entirely new future for me. Okay, so what what does the Truman Scholarship do for you? So the Truman Scholarship is a scholarship that is awarded, well, at the time I received it, it was awarded in your junior year. Uh-huh. So it paid $5,000 for the last two years of college and $5,000 for the first two years of graduate school. And so what that meant for me is that I could afford to go anywhere in Connecticut that I wanted to. I didn't necessarily have to go to UConn. So I applied to Wesleyan and to Yale because I could commute there. And and I got accepted at both schools. I was the first community college grad that Yale had ever accepted. Ever? Ever. Male or female? Yeah. Amazing. And um, certainly the first community college <laughs> uh, student with children um, and um, and they took all of my credits which was so you entered amazing. as a junior I entered as a junior I was required to enter as a junior to in order to um, meet the terms of the Truman scholarship mm-hmm. so I started commuting to Yale an hour back and forth from Manchester each day and so I would drop the kids off at school. I would speed down to New Haven, and I would go to school all day. And then I would come back and, you know, cook dinner and get them to bed and then start my Crazy. work. Crazy. Um, How did you keep that up? I don't know. I Youth, mean, if I, if I look back, I guess it, it's being young. If I look back now, I think I don't know if I could do it again. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, when I got to Yale, I was majoring in economics, of all things, uh, because I didn't have the luxury of majoring in history or English. I needed to be able to get a job right. when I got out of there. So I was majoring in economics, and um, I wasn't prepared, you know, I mean, to go into upper-level economics classes at Yale where there's Nobel laureates teaching the classes. And um, so I was flunking out of my economics oh, class. No. And I was also in a French class, I remember, um, where most of the students were already fluent because, of course, they'd traveled abroad and they'd been to, you know, they'd lived in France. And um, I was just struggling. What about Frog Hollow, though? That didn't help? um, No, I didn't ever pick French up from my family. And that's why I was studying it, actually, because I wanted to learn it. Um, but I didn't know it, and of course, this is this is formal French, not Canuck, so it's right. a little bit different. <laughs> and um, and so, I mean, I was struggling with you know uh, being in 
these tiny booths with the headphones on and trying to understand and taking exams and whatever. And so I was petrified that I was going to flunk out of Yale after I had, you know, made this huge financial commitment for the tuition and everything. And won the scholarship, too. And won the scholarship. And uh, so luckily, I mean, I will say that Yale was extremely supportive of me. They bent their rules every which way. So they gave me a dorm room on campus, which I did not stay at all the time, but I stayed there once a week, usually on a Sunday evening. Uh And I also stayed there um, during the entire um, exam week at midterms and finals. Um, They, you know, if you have a dorm room, you're required to take the food program. Uh, They exempted me from that. Good. And um, and there there was just so many other things that they worked with me as a non traditional student on to make sure that I could be successful. And one of them was they appointed a advisor named Richard Murnane, who was an economics professor. And uh, interestingly enough, he was a man who was brilliant, but he understood what it was like to be at Yale and be different because he had a stuttering problem. And he taught introductory economics classes. So he would get on stage in front of 100 students, and he would be lecturing, and all of a sudden he would start stuttering, you know, and spitting and losing his words and whatever. And then he would regain his composure and continue his lecture. And, um, you know, I think that brought a certain humility to him And so when he recognized how hard I was struggling, he actually offered to tutor me. And he said, "Um, I will give you my midterm exam to introductory economics. If you pass it, I will tutor you. Um, So I never studied for something so hard in all my life. And there was an extra credit question, and I think I got 103 on it or something. So um, I dropped out of the upper level econ classes and I dropped down to the introductory class and he tutored me and he taught me calculus and all of the things that I needed to learn in order to get back into the upper level econ classes. And um, at the end of the first semester, after all of this, I had gotten three A's and a C in French and, uh, and I thought, okay, I can do it here. Yeah. You know, I can make it. That's your first semester. That was my first semester. That is amazing. Yeah. So um, I was there for two years, and it was an amazing, amazing experience. And um, I ultimately did graduate in the top 10% of my class with a degree in economics. Wow. And um, one of the great things that was just so remarkable was when, um, well, just to step back, I became great friends with Kathleen Cleaver while I was there of Black Panther fame. Uh And the reason was that we were the only two undergraduate women with children. And so we struck up a friendship and it was really wild because, I mean, I would have never imagined ever making a friend like that, you know? Um, But when I uh, graduated, I was just so... um, honored because the dean of my um, residential college called me in and 
He said, Nancy, um, this is highly confidential, but I'm going to tell you, we've selected you as banner bearer for the college this year. And I had no idea what that meant. And I thought, oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And we completed our discussion. And I, you know, I didn't say anything to anyone because he told me not to. Yeah. And um, so when class awards night came around, I didn't go because my kids had a soccer game. And I was at their soccer game. And so the next day when I went into the dining hall, everyone was like, where were you last night? Where were you? Dean Garropy awarded you the banner bearer, and you weren't there to, <laughs> to receive it. And I'm like, what is it? I didn't even know what it was. And they're yeah. like, you lead the college at graduation, at the ceremony. And um, so you do. You, you yeah. carry the residential yeah. college flag, and you lead um, you know, the residential college. It was a tremendous honor. And they carve your name in the wall of oh. the residential college. And so all of the banner bearers are there, and there is my name, 1984. Um, and Dean Garropy, Tom Garropy, who was dean at the time, um, said some tr tremendously kind words about me. Oh. And, uh, and so that was wonderful. It was a really terrific experience. And this point, then you went, I, I think you went right into Harvard, right? I did, yeah. For a JD. Uh, I did a joint degree at Harvard um, between the law school and the Kennedy School, so I have a master's in public policy as well. Ah, oh, okay. And um, it's funny how that happened because, um, you know, you you have to obviously apply to schools and, and you have to uh, take the LSATs. Yeah. And, I mean, the day I took the LSATs, I was standing in line uh, getting my daughters registered for swimming lessons for four hours in the morning in the hot sun. And I think the exam was at like one o'clock in the afternoon. And I finally got through that line at like 1130. And then I drove madly to where the exam was and took it. And I had been studying and practicing logic games and doing all of this stuff, knowing that, you know, if I wanted to get into a top law school, I had to get a certain score. Yeah, And so, um, I did get, I got the lowest score I could get and still get into a top-tier school, but I, you got I made yeah, the pass. Yeah. And um, so when I was filling out my law school applications, I actually went to the career counseling office at Yale, and I told the woman that I was applying to law school, and I had just sent off my applications to Harvard and to Yale, um, and I applied to NYU and, and to other schools. And she said, oh, I'm sure some law school will want you. I don't think Yale or Harvard will want you, but I'm sure someplace will. And I said, well, why don't you think they'll want me? And she said, honey, they can have the best. You know, like somehow because I was a graduate of a community college and had children. Um, You're not the best. I wasn't the best, yeah. right. Yeah. So anyway, when I got the acceptance letter from Harvard in the mail, I really wanted to go and did you just no, oh, I did man. not. You should have. That would have been a good story if you did. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah. The, so you get the. Uh, I, this also explains, I think, after the JD, you went to the White House. You were a White House fellow. Yes. And this is because you had an interest in politics, going all the way back to the community college, right? Where you're sort of. You know, yes, and and lot. part of the Truman Scholarship. I mean, at that point. 
it was to prepare you for public service, which meant government service. The yeah. definition is broader now. Yeah. It includes nonprofits and other, you know, social initiatives. Um, but at that point, it, it was about government. And uh, so I did, we moved to Boston. I did do the joint degree, and I ran a research project while I, at the Kennedy School while I was there. And, um, and then I applied for the White House Fellowship, and people basically told me not, you know, people encouraged me to apply, but they told me it was unlikely I would be accepted because I didn't have a lot of professional experience, and it's really a program for people in their mid-careers. Yeah. Um, but, so I went, I mean, I it's a 30-page application, then you go to regional finals for a full day of interviews, and then you go to the national finals where it's three days of interviews and assigned seating and, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and it was quite intense. And then you go through an FBI, you know, security clearance for a top ser- secret security clearance. Wow. And they even interviewed the uh, principals of my daughter's school. Um, and I was accepted. So I went to Washington and I commuted back and forth on weekends. To Boston. to Boston. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so and, and uh, during this time, Scott is doing some other job now because he moved to Boston with you, right? So yeah, at this so point, sorry, at this point, uh, the wagon is hitched to your star, no? Well, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, he also completed his education. He went to the community college at the same time I did, and then he transferred to Central um, State University uh-huh. in Connecticut, and he received his bachelor's degree. And as I said, he had gotten in, into this tool and die apprentice program. Yeah. And so um, he was a very highly skilled employee for United Technologies. And at one point he got laid off and he got rehired into another division of United Technologies as a manager. So he was in management now mm-hmm. instead of being um, on the floor. On the floor. Say, yeah. And uh, and he one of the first times that we visited Harvard, he was very interested in quality assurance, and William Deming was speaking at Harvard. William Deming was, um, he basically uh, wrote the book on quality control in Japan, and then he came to the United States and taught it. Yeah. And so Scott actually got to go and hear him speak while we were visiting Harvard, and so he became very involved in Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality control management. And then he moved into um, managing small manufacturing companies. And he was moving around the country and always commuting back and forth. And uh, so he had moved up. At the same time I did. Yeah, and you're both moving all, I mean, you're both commuting all over the place. Yeah, we made the decision early um, in our marriage that we, if we needed to um, move or travel for work, that we would keep the kids in one place and we would, we would go. So our, the way that we managed is we would establish a home and that's where the girls lived and and we did everything we needed to to get our educations and to support them and keep them in a stable place where that's they're not right. moving all around okay mm-hmm. um, can we can we move to uh Hale and Door mm-hmm. right so this is your first job i think right as a outside your, of the white house yeah exa- yeah exactly and, and well uh, other than the research project i ran at harvard right but right. i mean with your with your law degree now right. you're getting you're hired at a law firm mm-hmm. and they hired you to do um securities is that right i was a first year associate i just came back from washington and i i joined their corporate securities department yes and so what did this teach you so when i was in washington i thought i'd be a litigator but then i was working in the U.S. Trade Representative's office, and I realized I really wanted to be part of the solution. Um, And so I went and joined their corporate securities um, department primarily because Paul Bronis, who was one of the leading high-technology lawyers in the country, Mm -hmm. was running. And um, so our practice was a scientist or a physician walked out of Harvard or MIT with a patent or a license, and we would help to build a company around it. And we would negotiate, you know, their intellectual property, and we would put their management team together and their venture capital. And if they were successful, they grew up and went public. We took them public. And I, my job was to sit with the scientists and learn what they were doing so I could write about it in English for the investing public. So I learned a tremendous amount, both about what makes companies grow and develop and what makes them succeed and what makes them fail Uh as well as the science that is behind primarily life science and healthcare organizations because at that time Cambridge was just beginning to bust Genzyme was there already right I think Genzyme was there Genetics Institute was there Um, yeah so some of the early I worked with Biotransplant which is no longer around Hologics was one of the big success stories. I, I did their initial public offering. They're now a billion-dollar company. Huh. Um, so those were the kinds of companies that I worked with. Okay, and then this, this is now becoming clear to me. Um, your next position after that is Spalding Sly and Colliers, right? No, so, huh. um, well, when I was at um, Hale and Door, two things happened. I got appointed to the board of the Jackson Laboratory. Mm. One of my professors was the chair of the board at the time. And he called me one day and said, Nancy, I just put you on the board of the 
uh, trustees of the Jackson Laboratory, we needed a woman. <laughs> I said, thanks for asking. Um, but I joined the board, and, you know, the Jackson Laboratory was a very small institution then. I think it only had $26 million in revenue at wow. that time and had just come off a major fire. Um, and so it was, but it was very sophisticated science. And so it was a great uh, experience to learn how an institution grows and develops from the governance on down, as well as working with the startups. And I also was asked to join the board of Beth Israel Hospital, which later became Beth Israel Deaconess mm -hmm. Hospital, yeah. which is a Harvard teaching hospital, and they went through a merger, which was a disaster. And um, so I was actually able to watch the healthcare side develop as well. And so that was a great education, and I, I made the decision that I would much rather work with teams to implement um, the science or the healthcare, rather than just advise people about how to do it. So I left and I started working with startup companies and helping them raise money. And I worked with a couple that I founded myself, um, some of which were successful and some of which weren't. That's how it goes. And that's how it goes. And then, um, and then I had been doing a project for my hometown of Belmont on a pro bono basis. Um, McLean Hospital owned. 8% of the land in Belmont, 242 acres of land, and it was zoned residential, and they needed to um, develop it in order to pay off some bonds they had floated in the 1980s. And so um, if they had developed it according to the current zoning, it would have quadrupled the traffic in town and just completely changed the character of the community. And so the Board of Selectmen appointed a task force to negotiate with McLean about the redevelopment of their land. And um, there were two political factions in town, both of them represented on the task force, and I was new. Nobody knew me, so they elected me chairman. Uh -huh. and, uh, <laughs> and so I did that. I negotiated and led the town in that effort for three years. There were hundreds of public hearings, educational meetings, negotiations with McLean. It was very contentious. But this is all pro bono you're doing this? It's all pro bono. Yeah, okay. And um, at the end of that process, I had actually hired Spalding and Sly to advise the town. And when I finished, um, and that the, the recommendation was actually passed by the town and adopted, um, Spalding called and asked if I would uh, start a life science practice for them. Because life science real estate development was just beginning. And I said, no, I don't do real estate. I do science. This was just something I was doing, you yeah. know, to make give something back to my hometown. But I did agree to sign on and write the business plan. And when I wrote the business plan, I realized that the product was technologically very sophisticated and quite interesting. It was very different because the mechanical systems and all of the building requirements from just your standard real estate. And I also realized that in order to be successful, you had to sell it through the science. You couldn't sell it through the brokers. And no one in the country was doing that. Okay, wait, no, explain that. You, what do you mean sell it through the science? You had to sell the space saying this is what science can be done in this space? No, no. you had to have the scientific relationships in order to I be see. able to place the space because it's the scientists who make the decision That's right. okay. about how to build the space out and where it's going to be. 
And I realized that there were only Alexandria Real Estate Equities was one of the early entrants into the market and Biomed Realty was around. They were still very young companies. And neither one of them was selling their, you know, acquiring their real estate through the scientific side. So I actually did sign on to start that life science group. And um, the first thing I did was start holding scientific meetings. And it was funny because uh, all of the other real estate professionals in the firm were like, what are you doing? You're holding a like a cocktail reception for all of the scientific leadership in Boston at the Athenaeum on a scientific topic. We're not scientists. Yeah. And I said, trust me, you know, this is this is how it has to be done. And um, I think in three years that that uh, group grew to 110 people, which also included Colliers International. So it became a national group with presence in life science clusters across the country. So and then but that's before Alexandria came to you? Yeah, so I was um working with Spalding and Sai and uh also working in New York because that was an emerging market. Yeah. And for years and years New York had been trying to develop a parcel of land called the East River Science Park. Um which had a laundry building on it filled with asbestos and a parking lot. And at the time that um, they actually issued an RFP, it also had a tent, which which housed the remains of the 9-11 victims before the memorial Are park. you serious? Yes. In a tent? Mm-hmm. And it was a very sacred place in the city yeah. because people from the families would come and visit their loved ones there, you know. And so it was a very, very sensitive place. And... Um, important, you know, to develop around that in the right way. And um, and so I had been, um, you know, on the walkthrough of the site uh, as the leader of the life science group for Spalding and Sly, and I put a team together to compete for that RFP. And um, I knew that the city really loved the design that we put together. Actually, Peter Schubert and Stephen Gifford, I forget the architect firm they were with at the time, designed the East River Science Park. And, um, and I knew the city loved the, the approach we were taking because the development fit into the character of the neighborhood. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, but I also knew that there were going to be financial constraints to Spalding and Sly Collier's ability to finance a project like that because it was a billion-dollar project done on spec. And so um, Alexandria approached me about joining them and leading their East River Science Park team. Their pitch, then. Yes. Yeah. And so I did. I made the, the move um, at the beginning of 2005, and, um, and, and I became a leader of their team. It was about 60 people, um, comprised of architects and engineers and construction companies and, you know, all, all different kinds, permitting people, environmental people. And we competed for that RFP and we won it. And so let, let's talk about that for a second. I want to, we'll get to New York Genome Center. But, um, you know, as you said, there's, there was a lot of discussion about can New York have some sort of life science cluster here? The constraints on real estate were the number one concern probably. You know, it's going to be, the premiums on real estate are going to be really high. You know, it's hard to make a cluster. Um do you, it's early, of course, but do you consider that a, a success at this point, the East River? I consider it a mixed success. 
Um, I have a little bit of a different take on, on New York and a life science cluster emerging here. I always have had a different opinion about it. And that is, um, I don't think real estate is the problem here. I, I think a lack of real estate available for life science development is a problem. But that's a zoning issue. Um, because you have to be in a manufacturing district in, or have an overlay in New York City in order to develop R&D space uh -huh. with heavy-duty labs. Um, there is not the kind of experience or history of entrepreneurship here, of scientists leaving their institutions and starting companies. Um, recently, there have been some companies that have been formed, and I'm very encouraged by that. But I think that for years, most of the institutions licensed their technology to the large pharma companies, and they received good licensing streams as a result of that. And so there never developed this kind of entrepreneurial kind of milieu the same way that it was in Boston and in Cambridge. Yeah, so it's a culture problem. It's, it is partially a culture problem. And, you know, I mean, traditionally, the financing was not here. Most of the venture... The bankers are, though. The bankers, yeah. and most of the venture funds were focused in other areas in the city, yeah. not on science and life science. Um, it's only recently that venture capital has been able... has been flowing into the city in a big way. Yeah. Um, and so when I say that, I think uh, the East River Science Project is a mixed success. Um, it... I don't think that it accomplished what the city originally envisioned in terms of a hotbed of startups there as you know part of an incubator yeah. that would grow into mid-sized companies and graduate um, into other space throughout the city. Instead, I think you know it a lot of academic medical centers and large pharma, and now there's some startups that have leased space there. But it's a different use than I think was originally intended. I think the reason that it is successful is because it's a very high-profile project. And it has, um, you know, it really, you know, has provided the life science sector in New York a place to meet and to coalesce around and to get excited about. Yeah. And so um, in that way, I think it's been very successful. And so that, that's interesting because the, the New York Genome Center is also like that. How did you start that project? <clears throat> I actually had been working on a high-sequencing throughput, a high-throughput sequencing center in the state of Virginia um, with a large healthcare system down there. And that was 100% publicly funded. And one of the things that that project had was an offer by Life Technologies to seriously discount 30 sequencing machines uh -huh. um, to make it affordable for this center to be put up and running. And um, that offer was still available when the deal fell apart because the new governor pulled the funding from the project. And um, so I brought the idea to some of my scientific colleagues that I had been working with in New York and said, look, Life Technologies is willing to, you know, seriously discount sequencers. New York is seriously behind in this area and needs to catch up. Um, one of the ways it can catch up is by putting a joint center together that all of the academic 
you know, institutions can use, and we should take a look at this. And so one of the first scientists that I approached, Tom Maniatis, um, I had been on the board of the Jackson Laboratory with him for uh -huh. a few years, and he thought it was a really intriguing idea. He had just moved here from um, Harvard, and uh, he made an introduction to Harold Barmas, who was still the president of, Colt of uh, Sloan Kettering at the time, and we went and had a meeting with Harold, and he had his whole senior staff there, and we explained the concept, and and Harold, you know, really um, gave us a very hard time initially, and was skeptical, uh, and I think the meeting lasted for over an hour, but when it finished, Harold said, look, I'm going to Washington to run the National Cancer Institute, so you should stay here and do this, and my team is going to help you. And so Tom Kelly, who was uh, Harold's number two, um, joined the effort and became a very integral force in helping the center uh, into creation. And then the next uh, person recruited was Mark Tessier-Levine, who had just yeah. come as the new president of Rockefeller. And, um, and so it went like that. And before, within a month, I would say, we had about 50 scientists that were actively working together to create the concept of a high-throughput facility that would be located here in New York. And they all went to their institutions and they said, can you pony up $50,000 so that we can um, figure out the feasibility of a center like this? And the institutions said yes. And so... We, um, that was 400,000, I think there were eight institutions in the beginning. And so I started a feasibility process of actually doing a survey of all of the institutions in the city and seeing how many sequencers they had. It turns out 29, and they weren't new. They were, you know, 454s and Sanger uh -huh. and GA analyzers. Um, so, I mean, the road at that time had over 300 sequencers. And the problem was clear because the entire direction of medicine was moving yeah. in this direction, and the city had no resources for it. When we actually were able, when my team was actually able to bring that story together and present it to the to the CEOs of the major institutions here, um, they were shocked, I think, to realize how far behind they actually were. Yeah. And um, it still was a very hard sell to get them to accept the notion of investing in the New York Genome Center. They had to be convinced that the center um, had a financial model that could be sustainable. Um, that they would get a return on their investment, uh -huh. um, that this was a good place to put their money rather than a different program that they might, you know, want, also want to invest in. Mm -hmm. um, there were questions around governance, you know, would the bigger institutions have to pay more? In the end, the decision was made, no equal representation. Um, so there were lots and lots of, of different questions that came up and complexities that had to be sorted out and negotiated. Uh, and it took a year, but ultimately each of the institutions put money in to found the center. 
and they had an affiliation agreement and we had a major launch on November, I think, 3rd of 2011 uh -huh. to introduce the New York Genome Center to the city. Yeah. Um, so but so now that that project is behind you, now you're, you're at Nancy Kelly and Associates, mm -hmm. which is consulting, um, helping to build startups again. Uh, are you looking for a new project? Well, I mean, I've been working on some pretty substantial projects. So when I left the New York Genome Center, the Sloan Foundation, who gave me $3 million to get NYGC off the ground, yeah. they called and said, um, we've been funding synthetic biology for 10 years, and um, we, we really want to understand whether there is a path forward for this science in the U.S., and in particular for Sinberg, which was the Synthetic Biology Energy Research um, Corporation. It was a 10-year program from the NSF. And so I signed on uh, with Sinberg and with the Sloan Foundation to do a strategic plan for synthetic biology in the U.S. And um, we kicked that off in London at SB 6.0. And we proceeded to interview, I think, over 140 people throughout the country from, you know, the Office of Science and Technology Policy all the way down to postdocs and people and companies and we reviewed all of the literature, over 500 pieces. And um, what we realized is that this was a very important scientific um, endeavor that had been pioneered by really about 12 PIs since the early 2000s. And it had grown into a community of hundreds. Mm -hmm. And they had um, actually proved their thesis, which was that they could apply biological or engineering co concepts to biology. And the beginning of an industry around that was actually emerging, and that was their second objective. Um, and so they really had been quite successful, but nobody actually understood what had been accomplished. And so uh, Nancy J. Kelly and Associates wrote a survey of the field and we wrote everything that we had found about what had happened over the last 15 years. Um, and the conclusion was that there should be a National Center of Excellence for Engineering Biology so that the U.S. could sustain its leadership in this area. Because this is going to be a very important area for competitiveness and employment yeah. in the years ahead. Mm -hmm. And the U.K., China, and others, England, um, Britain, um, had all realized this and written roadmaps for their scientists. And the United States had really not done very much other than funding Sinberg. And that, that program was going to sunset in 2016. So after um, writing the plan, which was also published in 2015, I continued to meet with the scientific community and to talk about what was next and how the community could organize itself. And so we held, I sponsored a meeting with the Sloan Foundation and the Woodrow Wilson Institute in March of 2015. And then it was a follow-on meeting at the New York Genome Center in July of 2015, talking about what kind of a grand challenge uh, would actually, could actually be used to spur 
um, the, the development of engineering biology forward. And that second meeting was coupled with the SC 2.0 meeting, which is the yeast synthesis project being uh-huh. led by Dr. Jeff Bokey. Yeah. And um, at that meeting, I moderated a panel on what's the next genome to synthesize. And um, Andrew Hessel was on the panel, and, you know, the scientists were talking about C. elegans or grass and, you know. And Andrew said, I'm sorry, there is nothing that will galvanize this community except for synthesizing the human genome. And the whole room erupted, you know, in debate. Some scientists thought it was a terrible idea, and other scientists were excited about it. And about a week later, Andrew called and said, um, I really believe this needs to be done. And, you know, I think that the science that I saw at that meeting was the most sophisticated genetic engineering that's going on in the world today. So if you talk to Jeff, I will talk to George Church, and I'll talk to my CEO and get some funding, and let's see if we can get the scientific community um, to consider a project like this. And, you know, initially I wasn't um, crazy about the idea. I thought that there would be a lot of ethical and social implications. That would be problematic. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, you know, the evolution of science in this area was moving so fast. You know, CRISPR was already upending things. Yeah. And if we did not initiate a project like this in the United States where there are clear social and ethical guidelines and leadership that could be applied to the project, it would be done somewhere else in the world without that. Right. right. And I think ultimately that's what convinced both myself and Jeff Buka to, to think about this. And so George and Jeff and Andrew and I started meeting on a weekly basis just to talk about if we were to introduce a concept like this, you know, how would how would that work? Right. Should this be done? I mean, what did we want like? to, yeah. right? Yeah. And so ultimately what we did was we invited a small group of scientists to consider the idea at a meeting um, that was actually held at the Alexandria Center in October. Uh-huh. And uh, there were about 25 scientists there. And what we asked them was, Um, come with ideas for pilot projects. And um, think about, so there were two criteria. One, you know, they had to produce real value for the life sciences sector. And two, they had to demonstrate that large strands of DNA could actually be constructed and that a project like this could be feasible. Because, you know, when the Human Genome Project started, we didn't even have the sequencing technology to complete it. We stand at the same place with synthesis right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So the scientists came with their ideas for pilot projects, and they were very exciting. And we debated and discussed them all day long, and there was high enthusiasm. And so the decision was that we would... Um, draft a commentary that would be published in one of the leading journals and everyone that attended the October meeting would be asked to sign on as authors and that we would draft a white paper and send it to OSTP and see if they would consider making this a major initiative in this area. And so we did both of those things and um, uh, we sent the white paper to the OSTP and we got you know, not a positive response, but I would say a favorable response. Mm-hmm. And um, and we drafted a, a, a 
commentary for publication in Science mm -hmm. and submitted it to Science. That was published on June 2nd with 25 authors. I remember. And, uh, <laughs> and we held a second meeting in May um, with 130, more than 130 people from all over the world to consider testing um, large genomes in cell lines. And um, originally that meeting, which was, you know, going to be completely open, we were going to broadcast the meeting, we were going to, uh, we had a web app uh, set up to, so people could have discussions all day long. Yeah. We were going to launch a website on the morning of the meeting so that people could follow along. Uh, but a couple of days before the meeting, science informed us that they could not make the publication date. And so we basically, according to the publishing guidelines, we couldn't even speak yeah. about the fact that a, pub a paper was pending there. And so, um, anyway, to make a long story short, the meeting became very controversial uh, because some were concerned about Lack the press, the yeah. closed nature yeah. of the meeting. I, I remember it's a secret meeting of scientists to discuss the future. That's of right, synthesizing genomes. Yeah. yeah, and so uh, huge, huge press uproar. And of course, we still couldn't talk about it because the paper still hadn't been published yet. So we just issued a statement saying. You know, when the paper's published, we'll talk. We'll talk. Yeah. And so we did. When the paper came out on June 2nd, there was a huge press push out to make sure that everyone had the story. The videos are all up on the website now. Anybody can watch them. Um, it's, it was entirely open. And, uh, and so the, the Center for Engineering Biology was also launched in order to manage and help support this project. And so now we'll be raising money for that, and I am, you know, kind of the executive driving that. Um, but also, this it's very important to the scientists, and yeah. we've actually had um, indications of interest from all over the world, from governments who actually want to support their scientists to participate that's in the good. project. Yeah. And so we're very excited about it. Um, so that's going to be a major initiative moving forward, and. Um, that's one of the projects that I've been working on. Um, I, when we were talking earlier, I want to ask you about this. You said that uh, you said it sort of offhand, but you said you know you, you have to take risks in life. Mm -hmm. um, so looking back, what do you think your biggest risks were? Oh, I've taken a lot of risks, right? I mean, um, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, taking the loans out for. First year loan, yeah, right. community college, you know, deciding to leave my my business, my first business yeah. and go back to school, deciding to go to Yale when I wasn't prepared, you know, um, moving to Boston. Yeah. I've never lived in a big city. I mean, I was a small town girl from a working class family. Yeah. Um, you know, commuting to the White House uh, back and forth. I was, you know, I mean, I was the only woman in my class. And I was the only one who didn't bring their family to Washington. All of, all of the, my male colleagues brought their families right. with them and lived there. Um, and even now, you know, I'm still taking risks. I mean, every time you start a new initiative, it's a risky business. Um, you don't know if you're going to be able to get the funding or to be able to get the scientific support or... Um, if the concept itself will fail at some point along the way. And so you have to be willing to step out and take risks. I think that's probably one of the most important 
things that's marked my career. This is probably the last question, but when you were young, I think I know the answer. When you were young and you envisioned the future, it could not look like how it does now. You wouldn't <laughs> even have known what it, you know, it wasn't a possibility. This, this is beyond anyone's wildest imagination. I mean, you couldn't make this up, yeah. right? Um, how does this happen? You know, I mean, one of the interesting things is where standing where I am now and looking back and telling the story, it looks like a straight line. The truth is I just wandered around a lot and did stuff that intensely interested me and took a lot of risks. And when you add it all up, it looks like, you know, it was coherent, but at the time I was doing it didn't feel that well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nancy, thank you for coming in. It was a great talk. Thank you for asking me. All right, that is your First Rounders podcast with Nancy Kelly. Thanks to Nancy. Thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for coming into the studio. My usual thanks to listeners. Without you, this podcast does not exist. And my usual thanks to the Midwest Quiet. They do not charge us for using their music, for which I am very appreciative. Um, Other things, find our blog, Trade Secrets. It's linked off the homepage of Nature Biotechnology. I will put up a post containing information relevant to uh, the things we discuss in this podcast. If you have comments on this podcast or the blog or anything else we do at Nature Biotech, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. And yeah, that's it. Goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.